Hi, welcome to Offscript. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Today on the show, we're going to be taking a look at the new uh, Hulu film, Portrait of a Lady on Fire. We're also going to take a look at the new Michelle Obama documentary, Becoming, over on Netflix. We watched a couple trailers, some things that are coming out that are exciting, and we're also going to take a look at the news. First things first, though, Andy, uh, what are we in, like week seven of pandemic or something? <laughs> how's how's it going seven, over there? Right, uh, we're approaching two months, for, for me at least. Yeah, it's it's been a while for me too. Uh, some places are starting to open back up, right? There's some talk of movie theaters opening again. Uh, any chance you're going back to work uh, at the office anytime soon? Or are you still working from home? Uh, June, we're aiming for June 1st, uh, going opening the office. I'm not sure if I'll actually be there, have to be there yet. but Right. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely freelancing more, so... I'll still be going to see clients, but for the most part, I'm doing a lot of work from home. I think that seems to be the plan, and I'm interested to see what news comes out with movie theaters, and I guess we'll get to that um, whenever news comes out. Since it's not here, uh, we need to talk about the news that we have, and our first story, Alamo Drafthouse Cinema uh, launches an on-demand platform. Uh, yes, our favorite mo- local movie theaters are getting into the streaming business, kind of. Uh, Andy, what do you know about this? Um, so as you said, Alamo is partnering with, with a couple of other companies to bring us a video on demand service. Uh, note, this is not a streaming service. Like, uh, it's not a paid subscription. It's just, it's VOD. It's rent, renting, uh, films. Um, and they're hoping to, you know, just champion some of what the Alamo draft house is known for, which is a lot of their indies, a lot of their, um, kind of retro screenings. Uh, they want to be able to take that Alamo draft house experience and bring it home. Yeah, I think what's interesting here is first uh, the kind of films they're going to be offering at launch. Movies like Parasite, Knives Out, Portrait of a Lady on Fire, uh, Spaceship Earth, which I don't actually know what that is, but uh, some fantastic classics. And they're partnering with studios like Sony Pictures Classics, Neon, Lionsgate, Magnolia Pictures. Big, big movie studios, right? Those are like A24 level movie studios. They're making big art house films. They're making stuff that's going to can. Like, they're definitely getting something going here but i guess my first question is why is alamo thinking there's space in the streaming marketplace to do this right there's so many services out there <laughs> i have one word for you trolls <laughs> trolls world tours trolls world tour really I, I i mean i think that's really opened the door to what's possible what's po- and i think it's just the money people are like wow people will actually people want on demand they will pay a higher price for on-demand films and some of the stuff from from alamo you know some of the, these in, they're known for their diversity of films a film selection and a lot of these hot indies you don't see anywhere else um so yeah if they got kind of exclusive vod rights i could see that being real successful for them yeah me too and I, i'm interested to see i guess how they kind of shake up their service amongst others i think alamo has a really devoted fan base people like going to alamo draft house and there's a good potential for them to really get in on the market here <laughs> at the same time they're launching with movies that are already available on hulu parasite and and portrait of a lady on fire which we watched this week that's where we watched them so i don't know what exactly that means for their offerings but i think if they can combine new films with maybe older stuff pick up some screening rights to stuff that you can't really find anywhere else um, that they would normally run in their theaters. I think they've got a real good potential to, I don't know, engage with their loyal fan base in a way that feels honest to their brand and and that people will want to pay for because they want to support Alamo um, when they can't go to the movies. I hope, anyway. Yeah, Um, totally. 
so that's that, I guess. Our next story, AMC Theaters stock soars on Amazon acquisition speculation. Uh, this is really something interesting. We were talking about this up until last night, just because I'm, I'm intrigued to find out what this means for AMC and Amazon. But the byline here is that AMC Entertainment is not doing particularly well, rumored to be not doing particularly well in the midst of the pandemic. All of their locations are closed. Uh, and there's been some rumors that they may be filing for Chapter 11 bankruptcy. And this might be the perfect time for a company like Amazon to swoop in and get in on the theater business. Right, Andy? That's that's about right. You know, it's incredibly interesting what this might mean. Now, th- this is all speculation, and I haven't read too many further stories, so it, it, may, it may have fallen through or a deal may not have come out. But just the idea of Amazon buying a big theater chain... Um, is huge. And if they did, it would change, it would completely change the industry. Just like Amazon has changed retail and a number of other industries and services, they could do the same thing to theaters. Yeah. uh, And this is a really big deal. Uh, If you don't understand kind of what that might mean, let's break it down for you a little bit. So Amazon is a producer of films, right? They are a production studio. They have Amazon Pictures. They buy stu- they buy films at, at Cannes and other distribution festivals, and they also make their own. Typically, studios cannot own movie theaters. You cannot own production and distribution of films. It's just, you're just not allowed. There was some... I want to say Telecommunications Act a long time ago that came out that just said you can't do this um, yeah. because you could corner the market, and that's bad. Um, but times have changed, right? We're, we're in streaming services now. Uh, Trolls World Tour is going to video on demand, and now may, might be a good time for Amazon to kind of leverage that misunderstanding of the home entertainment market to buy in, I guess. And yeah, we, we, we reported this uh, uh a few weeks ago where um, they were going to look to relax some of these uh, antitrust laws. Uh, this originally comes from a, a case, Universal Studios uh, v. the United States government. Um, and that's where they came to the conclusion you couldn't own both, like you said, production and distribution. And that that was to avoid you know collusion between studios to block out certain other companies. Um, but times have changed. Streaming has changed demand. Like the industry has changed and those are old laws. Um, so... Uh, they're getting around it somehow because they wouldn't be, uh, you know, discussing if it weren't a possibility. But what I think is is incredible is that they could really change things just like the price. I mean, you, you could start seeing something like the five dollar movie or the eight dollar movie, and that's it. That's the top. That's as expensive as it goes. Or I could see them Amazon adding it on to like your Prime subscription, like you know, for two dollars more. For three dollars more a month, you get X number of movies, or you get a free movie and and a drink, or something like that. I could see them tying it into their service, and Amazon, like a lot of uh, modern tech companies, can afford to run at a loss to corner the market. Yeah. Uh, on top of that, uh, on how they could get people into the theater, I, I'm thinking of like how the theater experience could be shifted. Uh, cheaper ticket prices, definitely, to undercut competition. Cheaper cheaper concession prices, definitely. Uh, Amazon has been getting into things like games, right? Amazon Game Studios. They could start running VR out of movie theaters. That's something mm-hmm. Cinemark is trying to do, right? With their The Void thing, at least over here in Texas. Uh, advertising in theaters could shift dramatically to Amazon products and Amazon services. And like the things you're seeing are now Amazon things. They could start cutting into things like Fathom events, right? That run live events like operas and plays for one night only in theaters. Amazon could start cutting into that and saying, hey, we're going to operate these now on our own basis, not have to use an external company. Like the potential 
to not just get into the market space in movie theaters, but to cut into entertainment and the way people consume it in a new way is huge here. And buying AMC, if they're truly going under right now would be so cheap. And they're the biggest movie theater distributor. Like it, it, it seems like a hole in one. Yeah. You get the chain at a discount and then you run it, you run everything cheaper and you tie in all your other services or promotions or I mean the list just goes on and on but it would completely revolutionize the theater going experience and everyone else would have to adjust just like the way movie pass came in even if even though it failed it completely disrupted everyone and forced every single chain to uh, develop a subscription service yeah, big time. And not to mention, uh, investors are obviously excited about this. That's the headline we have, of course. Uh, according to this, uh, AMC's stock rose 45% the day this rumor came out. People are super excited about this idea, and people who play the stock market know that it's probably a really good idea. Um, it's worth mentioning AMC has tried to buy a theater chain in the past. Uh, what was the name of it? Land Landmark Landmark Theaters. Yes, they tried to purchase and they were eventually outbid uh, when that happened a few years back and they kind of just backed off. But Amazon's interested in this and and from a business perspective, it makes a lot of sense to be interested in it. But you got to understand they would be buying a theater that is a theater chain. That is entering bankruptcy. So they're going to have to turn a lot around. They can't just pick it up and run with what they've got. They have to make some drastic changes. And I don't know if they're ready for that, I guess. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. We'll see. But um, like I said, this is all speculation. Uh, a deal hasn't been made. Uh, but if they do and something like this happens, um, it's going to be huge. Yeah, it's going to be really huge. It's going to shake up theaters in a way that has not happened in a really long time. Um just keep it here on Offscript for more, I guess. Uh, our last story this week, film version of Hamilton's stage performance to hit Disney Plus in July. This was a big surprise. This came out this morning, right? Yep. Yeah, totally. Um, so Disney was supposed to release the kind of screen version. I don't think it's not like a movie. I think it's just a recording of them on stage. Uh, right. Anyways, but it wasn't supposed to come out until October of 2021, over uh, a year and a half away or, or so. And they moved it up to July 4th, uh, which is very, obviously, patriotic weekend. Uh, I think this is a brilliant move by, by Disney. They're bringing something that everyone wants and everyone wants to see to streaming. Yeah, I'm, I'm really interested to see what happens here because Hamilton is infamously a very difficult show to see. Uh, tickets are outrageously expensive and you got to buy them two years in advance or win them in some obscure contest or silent auction or something. Um, because it's an incredibly popular play, and it's it's been hailed as, as a great production, and people love it, and people want to see it. So they've intentionally kept it away from streaming services. You cannot find a filmed version of it. I don't even know if they've done, like, a Fathom event or anything for it. Like, it is exclusively, you gotta go see it. And they have Broadway they versions. I think they have off-Broadway versions now. Um, but the original cast is primarily, like, the best way to experience the show. Obviously, they're not doing it anymore, but when they were making this when they were making the show uh with the original cast they filmed it they filmed a version of it on some it looks like they combined like a tuesday night showing and a sunday night showing and they filmed a few filmed a few versions of it edited them together and disney claims what they've done is created this really intimate experience with some kind of advancement in filming live performance to make it different and cool and fun and edgy originally they announced this and they said it's coming all the way out in october which was way too far away. I remember seeing the headline and thinking, oh, Hamilton's coming to streaming services. Great. And they said, yeah, it'll be like a year and a half away. And now today, 
it's coming out in like two months uh yeah. it's crazy well and also that was going to be a theatrical release actually not not to streaming originally so it was you know a completely different model and disney paid 75 million dollars for the distribu- distribution rights um so they paid top dollar for this and i think this is a smart move because i think disney has seen the results of the money is in the, sub- the subscribers and the subscription and that recurring you know 7.99 or, or whatever it is for disney plus and they're doing more you know, and we we have said that this first year was going to be hard for them content wise. They weren't going to have they didn't have a lot ready. This and this was before the pandemic, and so, you know, they're taking things like this or Ar- Artemis Fowl and moving them, and it's just it's paying dividends on their subscribers. Yeah, it's it's a little bit of an investment in like cultural capital, right? People will like you for doing this, and they will stick around for it. Similar to Alamo Drafthouse and their marketing, it's a loyalty kind of thing. Disney Plus is cheap. It's way cheaper than getting Hamilton tickets, that's for sure. And you can stay at home and you can watch this thing the day before Independence Day, which feels like a home run as far as marketing is concerned. It's coming early. Times are tough and we're going to give you this cool thing. It's going to be cheap. Everybody can access it. Like, it seems like such a smart marketing play to me. We're going to have to watch it for the show. Yeah, we are. We're, we're, we, I actually am going to watch it at some point, uh, regardless of the show. But we should watch it and kind of check it out. I don't know if we've ever covered a live live performance uh, recording on the show, so that'll be interesting. But, um, yeah, we're going to have to watch it and keep up with it, I guess. That's that's kind of the hot news. So July 3rd, Hamilton, Disney+. Plus. Uh, keep an eye out for it. And with that, we should move on to our first review. Andy has graciously agreed to take the summary on this one. Andy, please uh, take it away. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. So this is a, a French film uh, which was nominated for Best International Film, Best Foreign Language Film, or formerly Best Foreign Language Film, uh, directed by Celine Siama. Um, I've heard a lot about this. I've heard lots of buzz, lots of great things. Zach was very interested in wanting to, uh, to wa- for us to watch it on the show. Yes. Um, <laughs> so uh, this, the story is uh, we, we start... It's in a period piece uh, set in France uh, when what looks like about the 1800s or so. Uh, we meet our one of our characters, Marianne, played by uh, Noemi Merlant, uh, who's a painter, and she's been hired by by this um, kind of important family to paint uh, their daughter Eloise, played by Adele, not Adele, Adele Hanel. There's some tough <laughs> names in here. It, yeah. is, it is a French film. Um, and so she's been. She needs to to paint this uh, this woman, this other girl, so that she her portrait can be sent to a duke or something in Milan to uh, you know basically a marriage proposal or a marriage candidacy. Yes. Um, and the whole catch here is that uh, Eloise does not want to be painted, and she would did you know they tried other painters, and she would not sit still for them. You know she just she refuses to cooperate. You know she's putting her foot down. She doesn't want to have anything to do with this marriage. So the catch is Marianne has to pretend like she's not there to paint. She has she's kind of uh, she's just there to be a, a companion essentially, and she just goes with like she, they go on walks, they hang out together, and she's supposed to kind of draw her and paint her from memory, which is very really challenging. Um, Obviously, 
the the ruse doesn't last very long, and these two characters get to really know know each other and uh, develop an intimate uh, friendship and relationship amidst the backdrop of uh, kind of womanly duties in in this period piece. Um, and there's a lot going on in, in this film. It's very artistic. There's a lot to say about feminism and the female gaze, the female form, um, and lots of other. Uh, women's issues frankly and so that <laughs> that's a lot that's the that's the plot that's the story zach what are your thoughts uh i was you're right i was so excited to see this movie uh i talked about it for a few weeks i put it on a list of like hey this is on hulu we should watch it it was in theaters before the pandemic we should check this out uh finally <laughs> got Andy to agree to watch it sat down and watched it and man like i don't know if i was just <laughs> too excited or what but it just did not land in the way it should have for me and maybe it's watching it at home maybe that's that's just being distracted I, I don't know but I just couldn't get into what it was doing but I really respect what's happening in it and I think it's really good so let's talk about everything that works everything that's good everything that's worth praising and then like my three problems with it at the <laughs> end and then give this thing some thumbs up and move on because it's a really cool movie Sure. Well, and I, I want to just give my two cents uh, that I really, really liked it. And I, I thought it, it really is the incredible film that I've heard so much about. Um, and like I said, it brings up a lot of, of issues uh, that, uh, specific to women from 200 years ago, but that are still very relevant now. It's also what I've heard is a manifesto on the female gaze. It's it's so much about not the female like body as much as like the female face. There's so many shots of just like long and lingering on all the features of both the women, all the women in the film. Um, and it, it's about that. It's about both beauty, but also kind of the burden that that uh, com- comes with. Uh, so I, I thought it was fantastic. It was a little slow in starting for me, but uh, let's get into it. Yeah, so first things first, I think we should talk about the look of this movie, right? Because that's that's fundamentally, I think, what is so profound about it outside of the plot. I think this movie looks gorgeous. It is filmed, I'm not even sure where, somewhere in Europe, I have to assume, uh, in some kind of island, I think, with lots of cliffs or, or coast, really. Uh, there's some kind of large established, established house that these characters are, are in, but something you don't get in this movie is establishing shots you don't get a lot of like wide landscape shots of where they are and what's going on in fact most of this film is shot in portrait which i think is of course intentional as indicated by the title of the film the themes and also like andy said the female gaze right like the 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 look and the beauty and the form and the contour in fact it opens uh with a bit of a framing device set in the future where our heroine is teaching a painting class and she tells them to Pay attention to contours. Look at the curves. Look at the shapes. That's how the film starts. And that's carried through the rest of the movie in the way it's shot. We don't get a lot of landscape. We don't get a lot of like wide looks at where we are, but we get very intimate, sincere, drawn out shots of these women and this struggle that they have and these emotions that they're feeling. And it's very nuanced and it's very patient. And for a lot of people, it might be frustrating because it feels slow. It's a little bit of the problem I had. But it's artistic in a way that's almost experimental, and that I really appreciate it. it was, it's really cool. Yeah, it, like I said, it, the the issues that begin to come up through this story of just trying to paint someone uh, were really profound. It, it deals with uh, you know, kind of the, the prison of, of marriage, arranged marriage, childbirth. There's a subplot uh, involving one of the. Um, kind of hand handmaidens who works in the the house who um, has an unwanted pre- pregnancy, um, you know issues that are still very very relevant today. But brought up 
in an organic and, and really artistic way. Yeah, I, I, I also like the way color is, is moved around in the film. When we were talking about this yesterday, you pointed this out, and I kind of hadn't thought about it, so I don't want to steal your point, but you, you would observe that kind of the differences in color and presentation. Do you want to kind of speak towards that? Yeah, I, I haven't quite figured out exactly what everything means, but color is definitely an important part of the film. Um, when we first meet Marianne, she, she kind of has this big dark red dress. When we first meet uh, Eloise, she's in blue. And then, like, there's, and it's all like solid colors. Like, there, there's this green dress that one of them wears. There's a white dress at one point. Like, there's all these different kind of, of colors that are really important. And that I'd like to kind of read more about or you know upon subsequent watchings i could probably figure out more of it but it's definitely you know again very visual storytelling yeah there's a lot of color blocking here that's really important uh our, our heloise our woman to be painted wears a lot of blue and she is blonde our painter wears a lot of red and she is a brunette there's this opposite subtract kind of thing i think and like andy said deeper themes that i haven't quite figured out yet because i watched this like 24 <laughs> hours ago and i probably need to read some analysis or something uh the the dress that our character is being painted in is green uh strikingly green fire obviously is an important part of this film and what's happening in it uh that's obviously very red and there's a whole lot of daylight and diffuse light versus like natural sunlight versus like fog and like there's there's just a lot of like structural visual themes here that i haven't quite figured out yet but are really important and and, and speaking of themes i think gender is an appropriate theme because there are very few men in this film almost none uh which right. is surprising almost everything that happens on screen is done by a by a woman the only men i think featured are strictly at the beginning and the end Otherwise, that's pretty much it. They're, they're, they're not even really characters. Yeah, they, they kind of, they're isolated on this island. And, it, and it's interesting because uh, it reminds me a lot of, of prison and something like uh, Emma, which even though people can kind of come and go as they, free, they please, there's still like the land that they're in or the kind of area is still somewhat of a prison for w women. Um, like when we first meet uh, Eloise, like she can't, she's not allowed to go to the beach by herself. She has to have, have a companion. Like she has to have kind of a chaperone. Um you know, and then there's, of course, like the, this prison of, of marriage, the prison of, of childbirth. So kind of this confinement is, is a theme uh, that, that we see uh, throughout the film. And let's let's get into that, right? The plot and, and kind of these central themes. You already kind of gave the premise at the beginning. Uh, we have our painter character uh, who is tasked to paint a woman who is to be married without her knowing. That's, that's kind of our setup. And and the movie does such a great job of just kind of uncovering these details one by one. We don't really know where she's going at the beginning, but we know that she is going to paint this portrait of somebody. And then we get there, and it's kind of this mysterious island that, again, we don't really get a wide shot of. We never really get the context. It's all very specific. Um, she arrives at this house in the dead of night, and we meet one, one maid who is very kind, very young, who doesn't really know anything about why she's there to paint her. She just knows that she's involved somehow. And then our painter finds out, oh, there was a painter that was here previously that wasn't able to finish the work. And then we find out later, well, here's why. And originally, uh, Heloise was not set to be married to this man. It was Heloise's sister. And we find out, well, here's how, here's what happened to her. And like, it kind of just shows you what's happening in this film in this kind of card flourish approach that's really smart. And for a slow presentation like this, with a lot of long lingering shots and a lot of very specific angles, it's a smart way to kind of keep the plot moving forward without feeling like nothing's happening. Um, 
which was a challenge for me, but you were able to connect <laughs> with much more, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Like I said, I, I was, I was really drawn in by, you know, their relationship, but like I said, as these other issues, uh, come up, uh, like I said, we, we learn about the second act that the, uh, um, Sophie, the kind of handmaiden is, uh, is pregnant and, uh, this is something that the these girls have that Marianne has dealt with before, and so like they they kind of work together to try to essentially terminate the the pregnancy. But it's right. there's there's this great bond of like womanhood where they they all understand each other's struggles, and they're all kind of struggling with different different issues. But they all they help each other. They understand like it's very much about like this this sisterhood that they they develop this bond of like that only oh, that only women have to deal with, and only women can kind of relate to i I really you know i I told some of my female friends i was like please watch this movie and give me your opinion because i really need like we really need a female uh input on on this film yeah i think so as well i i really appreciated the way these women are able to connect right and a lot of that's done through pretty much vision there's not a whole lot of dialogue in this film the dialogue that's here is very limited Uh, of course the movie's all in french so we're reading subtitles (laughs) and even some of those subtitles are challenging as far as syntax is concerned there's some sentences spoken that i'm like i'm not even really sure i understand what that meant it's a bit of old english and also in a different language so i think translation is a challenge because i want to make sure to get things right but for the most part there's not a whole lot of talking it's a pretty quiet film and marianne is only on this island for like two or three weeks maybe and that's about it so it's a very limited amount of time these women come together and come to understand and know each other. They do that through simple things like reading poetry or painting or going on walks. And like, it's this very cerebral, almost spiritual experience that's that's really cool. And, and you're kind of able to connect with these characters in a way that feels so much more intimate than I feel like would happen just through simple dialogue. It's, it's, it's visual, like a portrait. And I thought right, that was really right. smart. Like I was saying, the camera lingers. So much is about how characters look at each other. That's there's a lot of the communi- communication is how they look at each other, how they how they talk, when they they look. And again, it's about the female gaze. And uh, there's so many shots where the camera is just lingering and no one's talking. And it might be Marianne, or it might be Heloise, or it or it's both. But it's it just stares and. Just like the beginning, when she's t- instructing the class of, you know, watch the curves, watch the bend, watch this line. Like, th- she's instructing the audience to do that. Yeah. And on top of the the, the, the pacing, which is very deliberate, um, felt a little slow to me. Uh, on top of the limited dialogue, something else that's really interesting in this film is that there is almost no soundtrack. Uh at all there are two music pieces that are played on screen so they're diegetic because they're in universe and then there's one other bit of women singing and that's it there, there are no piano keys plinking around while characters are walking around on screen there's no sweeping score when they're on a landscape or a beach it doesn't happen it is exclusively like wind and footsteps <laughs> and dialogue and that's it it is a very quiet movie and Again, for me, that contributed a little bit to making it feel slow, making it feel a bit dull. But what it's supposed to do is isolate the themes and the visual and what's happening on screen between these women and really make you focus on that and not distract from it. It's stylistic in a way that's really smart. Yeah, the um, the music pieces, it, it specifically uh, brings up the opera um, Orfeo and Eurydice. 
Yes. Um, which, which has been done in many forms, even in, in opera, this specifically the French one, which I can't remember who's, who's the composer. But um, that's a very important piece of music in this film. And there's a reason, because uh, that is the music we hear, in, and we only hear it a couple times, and there's a reason we do, and you'll have to watch the film to find out. But there's, that's a very deliberate choice. And the other thing that, Zach, what I just realized from what you're saying is that nature is a big theme as well, because like you said, we hear the wind, we see fire, there's rain, like the elements are, are a big part of this film. Nature is a big part of this film. Yeah, the, that's true. The sea. Uh, there's also a running theme of Greek mythology, um, this this kind of idea of humanity and, and what you desire versus what the world desires for you, what, what you see versus how you are seeing. Um, and that stuff gets a little convoluted in the subtitles a little bit. But I think if you really get tuned into what's happening by the end of the first act, you'll be all right uh, and, and you'll kind of get it. But it, at the same time, I do want to talk about the things I struggled with, uh, and I think I've kind of covered them already. Uh, I, 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 man, I had trouble getting into it. it. It just felt a little slow. The pacing is like agonizing if you want any kind <laughs> of action because there just is none. There is no music. There is very little dialogue. The dialogue that Seer can be confusing at times unless you really, really think about it. Um, so if you're a big dummy like me, <laughs> you're, you might have a tough time watching this movie. Uh, what did you think, Andy? You didn't have that problem. No, no like I said, it, it was a little slow in starting, uh, but I really got into it. I think, you know, sometimes great films are difficult to watch. Like I said, it's like eating your vegetables. It's like doing your homework. It's good for you, but it's difficult. And then a lot of times you don't really appreciate the experience until afterwards. And this is how I feel about something like um, Phantom Thread, which I could not stand that movie. I thought it was so pretentious, but I was so glad to have seen it because then I could discuss it, I could read about it, I could, you know, and then when I could read about it, I understood it more, I could appreciate it more. So sometimes it's a chore to get through, sometimes it's not very accessible, but you'll be glad you did afterwards. Yeah, uh, the analogy that I've cooked up, there's not a great one, but I'm going to say it anyway because I'm doing a movie podcast, is is this movie reminds me of like a really a really beautiful poem. Or like beautiful poetry, it's 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 wonderful and fantastic, and, and really speaks like tugs at the heartstrings. And at times, it's heartbreaking and tragic, but ultimately, like it's this beautiful thing. But it's also written in prose, and prose isn't for everybody. And and that's how I feel about this film. Like what's happening in it is fantastic. The presentation can be challenging, but if you can look past that and and really pursue something deeper, which is what this film's trying to do, I think you'll really enjoy it. Um, so that's what I think. I guess. Uh, Andy, any 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 other thoughts for recommendations? I guess I think I'm ready. All right, Andy, would you recommend <laughs> Portrait of a Lady on Fire? Uh, absolutely, I thought it was a fantastic film. I see why it was uh, nominated for Best International Film. And this is between this and and the updated Les Misérables, uh, some fantastic uh, French cinema and and international films uh, that came out last year. Uh, it's a it's a really heartbreaking and, it, and it's a tragedy. We know from the beginning that these two characters don't don't end up together, um, but it, it's very. It reminded me of things like uh, Brokeback Mountain, in where it's, there's a really strong, passionate romance that just just doesn't work out. But there's a lot of. I mean, it's a very feminist film. It's very much about uh, female issues that were relevant hundreds of years ago and still today. Great performances, a cinematography. Uh, I thought it was great. It is a little slow. It's in French. <laughs> so um, if that may not appeal to some people, but I thought it was great. 
Yeah, uh, I would recommend it. My problem is I don't know who I'd recommend it to. Uh, I would probably say I would recommend it to um, big fans of queer cinema, big fans of feminist cinema, big fans of art house cinema. I I would say you're really going to be into this movie. For, like, the average moviegoer, you might have a tough time. Like, if you're up for a bit of a challenge, this movie's on Hulu, it's where we watched it, I'd say go check it out. Because I really think what's happening here is worth the price of admission, especially if it's just a Hulu subscription. It's a really cool movie, and I think it's going to stick with me in a really interesting way. It's probably worth a rewatch, in fact, because I didn't really plug in in the way I wanted to, but... At the same time, it's it's a challenge. Like, like Andy said, it's eating your vegetables. So if you're looking for something a little bit more toned down... I don't know. Maybe maybe watch a trailer or two. Think about it a little bit and, and check it out. Um, I don't think any trailer captures really what's going on here, but hopefully our review has given you a bit of a, I don't know, a bit of a something, a bit of a sample of what's happening. And if you're interested, I think I think you'll like what you see. So check out yeah. Portrait of a Lady on Fire. My advice is always to, to watch challenging things in chunks. The first time I watched 2001, I had to do it in four in four chunks, you take take like ten minute break and reset. Um, but it was it's worth it if you can get through it. Yeah, I I feel the same way. Uh, also, one more thing while I'm thinking about it because we didn't talk about this in the review. Before we move on uh, to to the trailer park, uh, Andy, did this movie get snubbed at the Oscars? Because it came I, out December sixth, twenty nineteen. I mean, it, it got a nomination. I don't know how many. I mean, all I know is that it got uh, best uh, got nominated for best international film yeah which is a shame because there's a lot that works here especially things like costuming which we didn't talk about which are fantastic but i don't know you think you think it could have you could have held up because i think there's definitely some potential i'm surprised you can get more nominations yeah well actually and let me look okay actually you didn't get nominated for any oscars it was nominated for a golden globe oh, okay. for, for best foreign language yeah so it's so it yeah, maybe it did get snubbed <laughs> i don't know i mean if it's in december maybe that's outside the window i, I don't know if i i it probably did get snubbed. Who knows? Anyway, we should move on to our next <laughs> section. Uh, we finished one review. We still have Becoming. But before we get to that, we need to talk about some trailers that are coming up. Andy, uh, you, want, you want to announce this one? It's time for the trailer park. Uh, so the first one that we're going to watch is called uh, The King of Staten Island. I like your tattoos. What are those numbers on your arm? Oh, that's uh, the date my dad died. He was a fireman. Died in a fire 17 years ago. Oh my God, I'm so sorry. Don't be. It's fine. Knock, knock. Who's there? Not your dad. <laughs> uh, this is a new Judd Apatow dramedy, which I hate that word. <laughs> um, <laughs> which we haven't seen in a while. So this is in the vein of something like... Uh, Forget, forgetting Sarah Marshall, uh, knocked up, um, get him to the Greek. Uh, these these kinds of funny, but also same simultaneously serious uh, comedies that Judd Apatow is known for. Funny people also comes to mind. Um, so in, in it we have uh, Pete, uh, comedian Pete Davidson, uh, who's playing kind of a, a kid who's he's old. He's not old. He's he should have left the house. He's not. He's like kind of a aimless mid-twenties guy his he's got a tragic backstory where his father was an fdny firefighter and died in 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 action and he's kind of stuck at home and stuck in life because of this uh, kind of tragedy marissa tomei plays his his wife and not his wife sorry his mother <laughs> um she eventually starts dating someone who is uh an fdny 
NY firefighter and it, it becomes really kind of difficult for him to deal with. And that firefighter is actually played by, uh, Bill Burr, uh, Bill Burr. That's yes. Yeah, <laughs> a comedian, Bill Burr. Um, and, uh, it's got Steve Buscemi is also in it. And, uh, yeah, that, that's kind of what the film is about. What do you think of this trailer? Uh, I think it looks okay. I, I, a couple things. One, I think Pete Davidson's a really good comedian, and I think he probably needs a little bit more work, and it seems like Judd Apatow's kind of tapped into that here to give him a vehicle of what is supposed to be, I think, like an alternate take on his life if he hadn't gotten picked up by SNL. Because uh, I think, as far as I know, he's from Staten Island, so this is supposed to be pretty close to what his life actually is or might have been had he not landed SNL and started doing stuff like that. Uh, I think... It looks like an inspiring story, and I think Pete Davidson has potential to be a really kind of charismatic lead. He's certainly funny, and I think Bill Burr in a supporting role as this like new kind of stepdad character is great, um, because I think Bill Burr's funny as well. Mercer Tomei's great, Steve Buscemi's great, Judd Apatow's pretty good, but it's been a while since I've seen a movie by him, so I don't know what exactly to expect here, but overall, I'm hopeful. I think it looks pretty good. Yeah, so uh, a few things. Yeah, we haven't seen a Judd Apatow film for quite some time, and I felt like they were becoming a little cliche and losing steam. Excuse me. Uh, they were losing a little bit of steam and just not being as as kind of clever and enjoyable. So it, it'd be nice to see this. Some uh, some other points. Steve Buscemi's in this, and I, I didn't know this. Apparently, like on nine eleven, he he used to be a volunteer firefighter, and yeah. he like jumped on a truck or like you know basically got up and was actively helping like on nine eleven. So I think that there's a big part of why he's he's in this. Um, and then the the other there's another oh this film is also going to be released online that's the other big thing it's not going to have a theatrical release I don't think it's going to have uh-huh. a or it might have a simultaneous um, video on demand similar to Trolls World World Tour so that's the other question will we pay twenty dollars to see this yeah will we pay twenty dollars to see this which reminds me we got to talk about what we're watching next week at the end of the show I don't think we actually talked about that before we got started and it there's a good chance I'm I want to watch one of those twenty dollar features so get just get ready for that but <laughs> okay. yeah I I, th- I think this looks really cool you're right I'm definitely looking forward to the internet reminding everybody that Steve Buscemi was a part of nine eleven because he was and I appreciate that um but I I think it's it's just enough rooted in realism that like funny people I think there's potential for this to be really engaging and like heartwarming uh in a funny way which i think we need probably more of right that doesn't sound so bad so yeah i i think it's one of those things that you know when you look at things like i think forgetting sarah marshall is probably one of my favorite uh and you know it has a a a heartwarming story or there's a big you know relationship conflict but it's also incredibly funny and i think that that's what these movies have to be like you gotta have incredible humor and it's got to be really really funny and memorable like there's there's a lot of those movies that i still quote and but then there's a lot that i've completely forgotten yeah and i think of you know snl characters who have been the stars of films where comedy has to swing upward and kind of swing at them and in a lot of ways Pete Davidson reminds me of one of those characters right somebody like Andy Samberg uh, in one of his movies like he's heartwarming and he's kind of this scrawny kid who ultimately like has a heart of gold and I think that's I think that's really cool I, I think that's really good because it feels like a reflection of who this person is at least on camera so there's potential for this to be a really fun movie and I feel like I'm starting to talk in circles so we should probably move on to our next one uh, I guess I should take this one right because you did the last one uh, the movie is going to be inmate number one the rise of Danny Trejo alright fellas let's do this my name's Danny Trejo you might have seen me once in a while Desperado, Heat, Dust Till Dawn, Con Air, Machete. They make movies and stories about guys like Danny. Danny is that guy. 
As far as I know, and I don't know a lot about this movie, Inmate Number One is exactly what it says. It is the story of Danny Trejo, the star of Machete, and a ton of other movies where he had much smaller roles. Things like From Dusk Till Dawn, things like... Desperado, not Desperado. Yeah, I don't actually know. (laughs) No, it is Desperado, that's right. Oh, is he in Desperado? I think so. Yeah, so so Inmate Number One is the story of Danny Trejo and his rise from being just kind of a normal kid to his demise of getting into drugs and apparently getting into heroin at like 12, which is real bad, and getting into gangs and getting tatted up and and getting into a bad life and then going to prison and then getting out of prison and, and getting into drug rehab for other people and then meeting a guy who worked in movies and just that 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 stair step of like how were you down here and now you're up here and how did that happen and i think that's interesting i I really do i think everybody loves a story like that and i think this is an angle on somebody we don't really know that well i guess the the one thing that that holds me back a little bit is i don't know the story of danny trejo and whether or not it's all that interesting it's a little like the shia labeouf movie honey (laughs) boy right like it seems a little self-reflexive in a way that could be uh, I mean, I mean, divisive, I but it seems inspiring. I was going to say, I think it seems a lot more interesting because, you know, the Honey Boy is like a child, you know, a successful child star becomes more successful. Like, that that's not that inspiring. Danny Trejo was in a gang. He was addicted to drugs. He was in prison, caught a break to, you know, to be, to work on a movie set. And, you know, because he, he had that I've fresh out of prison look. And th- th- that's where the title comes from is that he played inmate number one for like five years because he looks the part. And I mean, everyone is, I mean, he's been in so many movies and guys that look like him have been in a lot of movies because they, they have some, such that rough look. And eventually he changed, I mean, not only is it inspiring for him, but he, he changed what that kind of look could be when he did things like uh, Machete, where he played the leading guy as this like really rough, gruff ex-con, but as the, the protagonist. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and there's also a lot of potential for kind of growth in what it means to be an action star, right? That's part of what's happening in this movie. Uh, Danny Trejo is not traditionally a handsome man. He's not traditionally what you would expect out of an action star. And even though Machete was a bit of a bit of like a comedy trope at first, like it spawned two films and a short film. And I know they're working on a third one, I think. And it's become something larger. And that's really what this is about is a man who started with nothing became less than nothing and ultimately has changed the genre which he's a part of now um you know he's not just some scrawny dude he's like a, he's like a ripped guy man danny trejo doesn't mess around and he's got a really inspiring story and i think that's really cool so uh what do you think of the presentation here like how does it how does it look because it doesn't look cheap that's for sure it looks like a well-made documentary yeah, yeah I, i'm interested in it. i i think it looks great i think uh it's a fascinating character and i kind of knew that he was like had been in prison and had kind of a rough upbringing. The other thing is like, he's pretty old. He's like in his seventies now, but like he's been doing this for like 40 years now or or so. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Just goes to show. I mean, if you work at something long enough, if you really commit, like maybe someday you'll get your, you'll get what's coming to you. And in this case, he totally is in the best way. I mean, because being that he was in a gang, that sounds terrible, but I, you know, I I don't know. I I think, I think this could be a really cool movie. Um, Do we know if it's coming to like streaming services? Cause I think, it's probably where it's got the best potential to grow, right? But uh, maybe, yeah, yeah, yeah. You're right about that. Yeah, <laughs> I'm not not saying that this wouldn't be interesting in theaters. I could totally see going to see this somewhere like uh, Angelica or somewhere unique. I don't know about mainstream theaters, if only because it's documentary and people aren't into those. But I think I think this could be a cool watch. It, it seems like there's a lot of like cool stories here. Um, 
So that's inmate number one, The Rise of Danny Trejo. And speaking of documentaries that are about people, we need to talk about our final film of the episode. The movie is Becoming, uh, The Michelle Obama Story. I am from the south side of Chicago. That tells you as much about me as you need to know. Becoming is the story, like I said, of Michelle Obama, who was formerly the first lady uh, to her husband, uh, Barack Obama, the president, 44th president of the United States from 2008 to 2016. Uh, this is the story of Michelle on her book tour after the presidency was over and they were out of the White House. She traveled to 34 cities, giving speeches, going to kindergarten classrooms, talking to people, doing pressers, just engaging with folks after you're out of the White House. And really what's going on here is the story of how she got there and then what she's doing now and what she's doing after. Um, it's actually a pretty apolitical story. It's mostly about what it's like to be the first lady in the White House and really what it's like to have to become the person in that position and then to get out of it and kind of start the next chapter of your life. It is about 90 minutes. It is chock full of high quality documentary footage and kind of sincere interviews from people in Michelle's life as well as her. Andy, what did you think of Becoming? Uh, I really, really liked it. I was into it uh, from the beginning. Um, I, don't, I don't know a ton about Michelle Obama. I do know that you know she, she went to Harvard and that, that she was from uh, from Chicago. But uh, you know this documentary really sheds light onto you know just growing up in that neighborhood and still dealing with lots of uh, racism, but also even how that continued, even as you know she basically how successful she was as a lawyer and into the White House and still having to deal with lots of kind of oppressive people and and real blatant. Uh, racism and and like and the documentary is more about how things after the White House like what you know when she can kind of relax a little bit and she can what, what is she doing now that they you know they've been president she's not gonna you know that's kind of as, as good as you can do politically so what would you what's kind of the next thing in life but uh, I thought it was really inspiring there's a lot of you know we get to see a little bit of Barack Obama as well as other people because on when she goes on this book tour uh, different uh, people come up and they kind of have a conversation so people like Conan O'Brien or Stephen Colbert these kinds of uh, sure Reese Witherspoon uh, in, interviewers yeah, like, yeah. yeah. moderators mm -hmm. yeah and, and and i think the journey of who she is as a person and less like the position she acquired is a bit more interesting because it very easily could have been like here's basically a recap of my eight years as first lady and here's my initiative for more vegetables and school lunches and and eating healthier for america and mentoring kids like that and that's all interesting and that's that's definitely got potential to be its own story but that's not what becoming is it's more about her and her life and what it was like to get up to that position and then it kind of very quickly sweeps past the white house and says what are we doing now and and, and what's happening after obviously that's what is the core of her book uh becoming was by the same name um but I think it's a really interesting angle. It reminds me a little bit of kind of Jackie Onassis and like her story around the White House and really becoming, uh, not not to not to make a pun out of it or anything, but becoming something more than just being like a face in the newspaper of like the first lady and the the, the person standing behind the president uh, in in for photo shoots, like to to really step into that role and then step out of it and, and what that transition means and what that means for the future. And like I said, it's, it's surprisingly apolitical, which I think is 
probably really smart. I, I know it's not going to sway everybody to watch this movie, but it doesn't take a whole lot of stances as far as ideologies are concerned. It's really just like, how do you elevate to what be one of the most widely known people in the world and then step out of that position, mm-hmm. um, which is really engaging and really interesting. Yeah, I, I found it really inspiring in that way. There's a lot of um, scenes of her with young people. She's really um, motivated and interested in, in working with young people because you know she says they're the future. There, they will be our future leaders. Like, and she wants to help inspire them. And that's you know she says a lot of real profound things. Like she said, the world is not equal. And don't sit around waiting for it to be equal. You need you have need to assert yourself. Use your voice. Use the power that you have. Now, um, don't wait for for it for the right time. Yeah, and and it really underlines, without being too specific on policy or the way things have been done or should be done, it it really does a great job of kind of underlining and emboldening this idea that that hope can change people and it can drive people and it can bring people together. And and that's seen a lot through kind of book tours she's doing and book signings where there's lines of people showing up, you know, to, to talk to her and, and are like openly weeping. <laughs> like really, yeah, yeah. it sounds corny, but like the, the imagery is really strong and vivid here. And, and people just who feel so moved by their message and her message. And, and, and that's really inspiring. I think um, contextually, uh, especially in the middle of a pandemic to see that. And it's really cool that they partnered with the, the Obama foundation has partnered with Netflix to produce content like this. Yeah. Um, so yeah, we should talk about presentation a little bit. This is documentary, right? And I do want to talk about that uh, for the most, well, hold on. I'm talking a lot. Andy, you want to, you want to, um, well, I mean, one? it's, it's Netflix. It's got Netflix money. It's super polished. It, it reminded me how much better it was than uh, the documentary we watched last week. Uh, that phrase when no girlfriend, um, yeah. just a documentary having, direction having an interesting character and picking in the interesting points in her life it talked a lot about her her youth and her childhood and how she was you know she said uh you know the first table i belonged to was the dinner table that's where i first felt equal like i could we could break up anything we could talk about anything you know i could ask my parents hard questions as long as it was like in a respectful way and she was like it wasn't until i left in like you know kind of left school left her environment to go to college that she didn't feel like the you know that's when she first started feeling the impacts of being different or being or racism that and she t- talks about her her college one of her college roommates moved out because her mother was horrified that she was living with uh, a black girl like you know that yeah, yeah that's that's inc- like the psychological damage of that and impact is is incredible sure and, and then it gets into how she met barack of course and how they were going to harvard and there's some there's some great little stories in there about their early interactions and then moving towards the white house and then it really dips into her family and her dad who had ms and and her brother and her mom and how they supported her and they they get to go visit kind of her old home and kind of see where she came from and it's it's such a striking difference between where she is now you know i think i think publicly we see a lot of fashion and and makeup and photography and it does a great job of, of outlining who she really is under all of that and and even to the point where they talk about embracing that and how they would pick her outfits and her shoes and stuff for photos and how people viewed her regardless of what she was wearing uh once the campaign really got going and how once she started making speeches people uh used her as as a, a point of contention uh, and and put signs up with their face on them and horrible phrases and how she tried to really 
lean into that in a strong way and and still come out on top as being a positive engaging person without letting it get to you and 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 they do a great job of explaining that it did get to her like it really did but she had to kind of overcome that and it's just a it's a really cool story that i haven't really heard before um that feels very close to home because it's happening here in america and and it already happened and came and went we're already on the other side of it and and it's really a great launch pad for where she's going next yeah, you know, she talks a lot about, um, you know, when they go, when they go low, we go high, and that she said, you know, sometimes that's that's difficult uh, to do, and it's it's frustrating, especially to me, like because they talk about the, you know, the slightest thing would be taken the wrong way and construed and portrayed differently in the media, and they had to be so careful in what they said and what they wore and all this stuff, and we're and we're like, and now it seems like none of that matters with current current leadership. <laughs> Not now, now, Andy. Hold on. This is apolitical. Let's not do that. Um, yeah, and and like I said, in in being an apolitical presentation, this does not draw a whole lot of comparisons to where things are now. Far from it, actually. I think they intentionally stray away from it. They really focus on what she is doing next, not where the country's headed, not who's in office. They don't do that. Like that's that's not what this is about. This is about kind of her journey in mentoring other people and kind of growing and changing with a country that is constantly growing and changing and evolving. And it's inspiring. It really is to see somebody who has not lost hope and has not lost faith in where things are. <laughs> yes, and, and to say, you know what, I want to, I want to mentor. I want to teach kids and, and to grow and change with where things are going and still embrace this idea that America has so much more potential than I think a lot of people may feel it does. Yeah, I, do I agree. To, yeah. I agree. It is. It is inspiring. It is uplifting. Um, in, a t- in a time when I I have not felt much of that, it def- <laughs> it definitely helped uh, kind of lift my spirits uh, yeah. in, in a lot of ways. You spend enough time in quarantine, right? You start to <laughs> start to get caught up in some things. But I, I really appreciate that this movie did not follow a strict timeline. Uh, it's not like there's no like big screen that comes up at the beginning. It's like week one book tour <clears throat> Memphis or something. And then 20 minutes later, week eight book tour, you know, wherever Charleston, like they don't do that. Like it doesn't really follow any kind of set timeline. It's just kind of like, here's a montage of this book tour really and not in any specific order and here's some moments from it and while it's happening we get some narration over of her past and where she's headed for a 90 minute documentary i i think it's pretty tight for trying to establish a a, a, a movie around a feeling and less around like a series of events um does a good job of that yeah I, i'm i was with it the the whole time it's not you know I feel like if you're going to have a long doctor documentary, it better be really interesting um, because most of the time I think 90 minutes is perfect for, for most feature documentaries. Yeah. And, and I think this lands kind of comfortably in that camp, right? It's not too long, not too short, says what it needs to say and then gets out of its way and says, Hey, you know what? If, if, if you're interested in more of this, you know where to find her, you know, otherwise, uh, you know, th- thanks for watching, I guess. And, and, it respects the viewer in that way, I think. Like, it, it, it feels engaging and it feels close and it's got this feeling of inclusion that everybody can be a part of this movement and this idea, you know? Then in a lot of ways, everybody is. Uh, you just have to embrace it. And um, feels good. Feels real good in quarantine, man. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> it, feels, it does. Feels good to watch this movie. It's heartwarming. So, any other thoughts for recommendations? I think I'm ready. Andy, would you recommend Becoming? Uh, yes, it it was really uplifting. Even if you don't al- align with her p- 
politically. Uh, she's still a fascinating story uh, coming from the south side of, of Chicago, growing up in a kind of lower working class uh, family to going to college, going to, to Princeton, and dealing with lots of, of obstacles. People telling like her guidance counselor told her, uh, Princeton, you're, you're aiming too high. You're, you're not, you won't get in there. And then she did. And then she went to, you know, she ended up going to Harvard Law and then, of course, getting politically involved and then uh, becoming first lady. So, um, yeah, I, I really liked it. It was really well done, really uplifting, really in, inspiring. Um, and a time when we, like I said, when we don't have a whole lot of that. So I, I really recommend it. It's not too long. Yeah, I, I'm in the same boat. I think if you were a a passing fan of the previous administration and really some of the ideologies. I think you're probably going to really enjoy this. I think if you need a little bit of a lift uh, in times like now, I think it's good. It definitely tugs at the heartstrings uh, in some moments, so keep an eye out for that. But otherwise, um, it's really cool. I I really enjoyed it. I I would recommend it probably to older audiences, people a little bit more mature, right? It's not a a young man's game, this documentary. You got to know what you're getting into. Um, But it's good stuff. I I liked it a lot. I would have liked to have gone and seen this like probably in an actual theater. I think a screening would have been really cool. But for watching it at home on Netflix, you you could do so much worse. So Becoming, it's available on Netflix. That is the place to watch this film. And with that, we're about at the end of the episode, Andy. Um, wow, time flies. That's right. <laughs> uh, what are we watching next week? Um, so I know one of the films, you're going to have to talk about the second one, uh, but the first thing we're going to be watching is uh, Bombshells and Dollies, which is a documentary from Tricos Entertainment, who we've worked with uh, before. They sent us a screener of uh, th- this documentary that's going to be uh, on demand on Amazon and a number of other platforms. It deals with the 2015 uh, Viva Las Vegas p- pinup girl contest not costume contest contest um big huge uh pinup competition uh worldwide people come from all all over the world and so the documentary covers uh the contestants the music the fashion everything about this um it's like i said it was filmed quite a long time ago but it was it's just uh now coming out so that's one of the ones we're going to do and zach what else are we doing (laughs) So the other movie I wanted to watch, and I don't know if Andy's going to spring for this because I didn't talk to him about it before the show, but let's just, you know, if you're not, if you're not a well edited, Put me on fine. the spot. It's right. Uh, Scoob is coming out. May 15th. <laughs> <laughs> Here's the thing. I, okay, two things. One, I'm a pretty big, like, closet Scooby-Doo fan. I'm not the old stuff, but, like, the like the new stuff, but, like, the old stuff, like, Scooby-Doo, where are you? I was totally into those. And I also have a wife who kind of likes cute dogs and stuff, and she wants to see it. So if you don't want to watch it, it's fine. But I'm going to watch it. So we'll talk about it after the what? show and figure it out. Uh, but well, that, I, if you don't watch it with me, I can at least, I don't know, take a couple minutes and talk about it. So yeah, that might be cool. Well, it would be interesting to do, like, what's it feel like to pay $20 for a rental? Like, to, yeah, and, and, man. And then that experience. Like, I mean, because for King of Staten Island, I'm prepared to pay 20 bucks for that. You know, it's a premium sure. title. Like, right. you got to do it for, for bold cinema. That I can right. understand. Scoobs, I have a harder time justifying. Yeah. Um, I, I that's exactly what I told Christine when she was like, you better tell Andy we're going to watch Scoob. And I was like, okay, listen, one, I cannot just tell Andy what we're watching. <laughs> and two, it's 20 bones. Like that's a big asking price. So I don't know. Yeah, maybe, maybe we'll have you over with a mask on. You can watch it with us or something, but otherwise I'll probably watch that. Uh, if not, we may watch something like, like uh, good time, uh, which is the Robert Pattinson helmed uh, Safety brothers film, which is available on Netflix. I've actually seen that before. Um, that might actually be a really good time. Also, Burning, which I this don't know a, what that is. This is South Korean uh, kind of mystery noir uh, film that I've I've actually already seen this 
Um, but <laughs> okay. I, I, I really want to see it again. More South um, Korean drama. I love it. Yeah, it, it's. Yeah. I mean, it was. I heard a lot about it, and it's long. Like it's two and a half hours, and but man, it's it's really um, engaging. And I also wanted to just mention uh, if you have HBO, uh, Joker will be available uh, this weekend on or the sixteenth, and then in a couple weeks, I, I think we need to. <clears throat> Also, get, finally watch Rocket Man. <laughs> really? Oh gosh. Okay. I'm surprised you actually want to go for that. Yeah, Rocket Man came out a while ago, and we had just seen Bohemian Rhapsody before that, and it was like what, like a month later, Rocket Man came out, and we were burned on on. Well, I think biopics. it was it was actually the following year, but we just like never got was around it really? to it. Oh yeah. gosh. Yeah, no, I'd like to watch that. I, I I don't mind a little Elton John every now and again, and I've heard consistently it is better than Bohemian Rhapsody, so that might be worth checking out. But so. Bombshells and dollies we're going to watch. We'll see what we watch otherwise. You're going to have to tune in. But otherwise, that's about our show for the week. Uh, if you liked what you heard, if you liked what you saw, check us out on Facebook, on Twitter, on Instagram. On occasion, we upload things to YouTube, and we're thinking about doing that a little bit more. So go check us out over there. If you want to talk to us about what we did, what we said, um, maybe find out why I didn't really like Portrait of a Lady on Fire, if my explanation wasn't good enough, or explain that becoming wasn't all that was cracked up to be, or any other controversial opinions, email us at mail at Offscriptfilmreview.com. Check out our website, Offscriptfilmreview.com, where you can find old episodes, you can find interviews Andy's been doing on the radio, which is still nuts to me. I haven't heard <laughs> all of them, so I need to go back and check those out. Uh, you can find us on Spotify, iTunes, Google, everywhere you find your podcast normally. And if there's any way you want to support the show, any way you can really help us out, just subscribe. Just subscribe to the show so you can get new episodes of Offscript straight to your phone every single Tuesday night when we do our episodes and upload. You can also rate and review if you really want to go for it. That would be neat. And you can tell us what you thought there. And you can throw us five stars because that's how many stars you throw off script, right? Five stars every time. And with that, I'm starting to ramble. We should wrap the show. Uh, this has been Offscript, the home of Bold Cinema. I'm Zach Lewis. And I'm Dr. Draper. Thanks for watching.